Um, my name is Blair, and I'm the youth pastor here at the church. And um, yeah, I've been here for just over a year and a half, and I've really been enjoying it. And um, Thursday, we had a little bit of fun in here, kind of got carried away. Uh, there's some damage, but we fixed it, so it's all good. Um, but um, yeah, anyways, so yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we've been in. The Sermon on the Mount, maybe the greatest sermon ever given by Jesus or anybody ever, right? And so we're going through that. And one of the things we're looking at is what it means to be blessed. And if we were to kind of modernize that, we'd say happy. Blessed means happy. So we've got that figured out. We've got the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus walks up the mountain and he delivers his speech. And uh, he, he starts it by saying, blessed are those, blessed are those. And that just means happy. So we're looking at happiness and what it means to be blessed, truly blessed. And before we do that, something kind of below that, why we're doing church at all, why we do church, Ken's vision here is that we're so transformed by the good news that we can't help but be good news where we are, right? So we're so transformed by Jesus, so in love with Jesus, we get so much joy from Jesus that we can't help but being transformed. And if not, it doesn't really matter too much, I don't think. So there's got to be that transforming piece that we're so motivated to transform other people that's the vision that Ken keeps hitting on. Now, getting back to the Sermon on the Mount, he, Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago, which is still mind-boggling that it's like, we still read it today, of course. It's kind of crazy. It's got that weight. And um, as I said before, uh, we're looking at what it means to be blessed. And I'm just going to read a little bit uh, out of the scriptures. It's in Matthew 5, if you guys want to turn or look on your phone and read along with me. But I'm going to replace blessed with happy. I'm going to take happy. I just put happy in there because I think that's going to help kind of get our, our brains around what's happening. So here's what Jesus says is happy are those are the poor in spirit. So that's the first thing. Happy are those who mourn, which is like weird when we keep, when we see this juxtaposed back to back, right? Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness sake, righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has a very different definition than our definition. The culture has hijacked that word. Our culture has decided to take on the word blessed and use it for totally different um, kind of meanings. Does anybody know who DJ Khaled is? My youth all know who DJ Khaled is. Does anybody else know who DJ Khaled is? He's this famous rapper. And uh, I don't know why he's famous, because he's not that great, but he's famous anyway. And uh, he says, I'm blessed, blessed. And he'll say, I hope we get the picture. Yeah, look at this. So he's in the tub. Keep your head above water, I guess. He's in the hot tub. Bless up. Then he gets a car and he says, I'm blessed. Blessed, I'm blessed. Then he gets a, a hit record. I'm blessed. And he gets a new mansion. I'm blessed. That doesn't make any sense when we look at what Jesus is trying to say. That's not what Jesus is about. And we use the word blessed in a number of ways that have nothing to do with what Christ, and you can say it, like it's all good if you say it, but that's not what Jesus means. And I went on Instagram and I searched up hashtag blessed, and I saw all these stupid things about cars. And I was like, this isn't it. This is not what we're talking about. And uh, I, I, we were going to put one of them up, but we couldn't get a chance to do it. But 
I'm actually glad because then the person's profile was on there and we would have all gone after him and said, you need Jesus. And it would have been crazy. So we're glad we didn't do that. But that's the culture. That's what the culture tells you. And it's crazy when the culture does something, right? The culture does things and you just kind of go with it. And then maybe you end up with nothing because you start to try to accrue wealth and keep wealth and money. That's not good. That's not going to do you well. And that's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's got a different equation, as we talked about. If we use Jesus, his hashtag, bless the meaning of it, it'd be blessed to give the coat to someone. I could take a picture of that. So I'd be in the hot tub with the coat. I'm giving it to someone. Blessed am I. I'm blessed then. That's what Jesus wants it to look like. If you're ever going to use the hashtag, use it that way. Maybe we'll change it. We'll get it back. That isn't the gospel, what we see with DJ Khaled, but it's so easy. And I, I use DJ Khaled because he's kind of like a person you can't forget. Like his face is kind of unforgettable. Whenever you see that face, think the opposite. And then you're like, okay, I got Jesus. Not that he's a bad guy, but we're going to use him as the, the thing to flip with. So we've got that. That's what we've been talking about. And happiness and being blessed is not about getting stuff. It's not going to work. So that's the first thing. The next thing we looked at last week, I don't know if you always got scared, but Ken had a candle here and he lit it up and I was, and then he put a cardboard box over it. And I'm like, bro, like we're going to all go up in flame here. And then actually some of it spilt the wax onto there and I had to clean it up. So I'll tell him about that. Um, but he talked a little bit about salt and light and we do find salt and light, obviously salt. You put salt on fries, they get more salty. Maybe you like that. They may get more tasty right? And light is the thing that exposes darkness, right? So we've got salt and we've got light. One preserves, one's a preservative. Salt preserves things, makes things last longer, makes them taste good, as I mentioned before. And again, light is the thing that exposes the darkness. And uh, Ken talked a little bit about that. And one of the things I wanted to just kind of reiterate is you don't hide the greatest light that you've ever known. You don't hide light. Light isn't meant to be hidden. It's meant to be shone so everyone can see it. It's meant so everyone can see it. That's light. That's what Ken was getting at last, last week. And one of the things I loved about that is the tastiness of it, attractiveness of that. Salt tastes really good. You want more of it. I always, you put it on some food and you want it again. You want more of it. And we're going to get later on, we're going to talk about the world of, word appeal what Paul uses, appeal, be attractive. But we have salt and we have light. And I want to talk about how necessary, first, how necessary light is today. Do you ever look around in the culture and think, man, it's dark, like the culture could be dark. Just get overwhelmed by darkness sometimes. It's like, wow, this is, we're really like not headed in the right direction as a culture. Sometimes that's what we see. It is so necessary to spread light. So necessary to spread light. Uh, I just did a little research because I want to look at um, sort of what's going on in our culture. And one thing I noticed when I did some research was, one, the anxiety rates in girls are through the roof. Young girls, anxiety rates, huge, like way up. And the key, the reason is, is because on social media, if you post one too many, which is Instagram, one person too many people, they get the value by the likes or dislikes. And that is the thing that they're triggered by. Women, the, the young girls are hit by that. And young men, they don't know what they're doing. They're totally irresponsible and have no clue what's happening. They don't have responsibility to that key piece. So we've got, we've got a lot of darkness. 
These are your kids. These are our kids. I see them when we do youth group. I think about that. I pray that for them, that they wouldn't have the value in that. Light is needed, necessary. We must have light. And one of the cool things about that, I thought, okay, again, if this hasn't done anything, then what's the point? So I want to look back in history at where Christianity has been an incredible source of salt and light. And if you're taking notes, this is where you want to take notes because there's some cool stats, some cool things that Christianity has actually done to bring salt and light to the culture. So a couple thousand years ago, if you didn't know this, slavery was considered okay. It was a nice form of employment sometimes. Like, yeah, sure, I'll go be a slave because if you're in the right house, you might get paid well. If you're in the wrong house, watch out. You're going to die. That, that was the equation. That was accepted. Everybody accepted that truth. Okay, that's just the way it is. So think of something today, the way it is. That's just the way it is. We all drive cars. It's the way it is. Like that. Ancient cultures all thought that slavery was okay. There is this person, this father in the Christian faith na- named Gregory the Bishop of Nyssa. And what he said in 326 is incredibly powerful, and he's the first person to publicly push against slavery. And he says this. Like, you got to think about this for a second. He's, He's pushing back against an institution, a thing that works in culture, and he's saying, no way. Not, Jesus is not down with this. That's hard to do, especially when you could have died for saying something like that, right? So he says this, and Brian Tierney from Cornell University hits on this, And he talks the idea of being equal dignity of worth is coming out of these people. And here's what Gregory uh, says. It's incredible what he says. He says, how many coins for the image of God? How many coins did you get for selling the God-formed human being? How much money did you get for that? The entire cosmos should not be traded for a human soul. Who can sell a man or buy a man who is made in God's image? And by the Middle Ages, this just became accepted that that's not a good anymore. Like that just became part of the culture. So why we don't have slaves in Canada? It's because of Jesus. It's because of the salt and light. So what did this, this bishop do? He said, ah, oh, there's a little bit of an issue. There's darkness over here. I'm going to put salt on it. I'm going to put light on it. And it changed everything. Martin Luther King also said this, the founding fathers, the Americans, he's talking about, were influenced by the fathers, the early fathers. All men have something within them that is unique, all of capacity for fellowship. And here's the point. There are no gradations in the image of God. Base black, treble white, everyone is made in God's image. I love that. Base black, treble white, everyone is made in God's image. It's a hard word to say, hard name. Jürgen Habermas. Glad I got that out. The ideas of human rights directly come from Judeo-Christian values. And when we look at that, we say, okay, what did, Je- what did, what did Jesus actually do? What did this ha- has this done anything? Absolutely, it's done something. Jesus' words have transformed all of us, and we don't even realize it. We look back and go, wow, that's so different today. The idea of just universal benevolence, universal giving, goodness, giving to other people, that's a Christian idea. That's salt and light. It's directly out of the Bible. The Roman sex ethic, which is a pretty complicated system, if you were to look at it and go, men could have sex with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, 
And as a woman, you had no uh, say in the matter. I don't know if that doesn't sound like a good deal to me. That doesn't make sense. So what comes along is salt and light comes along onto a broken thing and it changes it and it says that marriage has to be what? Covenantal and consensual. That's what the Christians started to say. They look back in history and say, oh, Adam and Eve, oh, let's follow that. And it changed everything. So that's salt and light. And why I want to look back before we look forward is to motivate you to say, look at that. You could tell your friends about that who aren't Christians. You could say, I, did you know? They're talking about Christianity. You're talking about your weekend. Yeah, I went to church and I learned this week that the first person to declare that slavery is wrong was a, publicly was a Christian. Motivated by Jesus, that's salt and light. And the landing point, the sticking point is people need to know that. I think we all could agree that people need a little bit more light in their lives. They need a little bit more salt in their lives. All of us could use a little bit more of that, like that meme, Salt Bay or whatever. Sprinkle salt onto people. Sprinkle light onto people. Tell them of the goodness, right? Tell them that, that Jesus changed how we, looked, we look at each other. We don't view each other as slaves anymore. Why? Jesus Christ. You tell every person you know about something that powerful. And that's the motive and that's the encouragement. And on top of that, Here's the kind of landing point is where can you be salt and light? What needs a little bit of salt and light in your life? Is it a coworker? Maybe you work at a school. It could be another teacher. It could be a kid, you know, like maybe you're, in, you're a youth and you say, hey, someone else needs a little bit of salt and light. That's the first thing we looked at. The next thing we're looking at, just so you know, Jesus wasn't a, uh, a Christian. He was a Jew. So he's coming into this Jewish framework, this Jewish kind of way of being. And he's talking to Jews. So he's talking to a lot of the times. So in Matthew, if you read the book of Matthew, you're going to notice that Jesus gets up on a hill and he declares what? The Sermon on the Mount, right? That's what he starts to speak. He, in that time, basically what's happening is Jesus is replacing Moses. Jesus is taking, because what did Moses do? Went up on the hill, got the commandments, declared it to the people. Jesus gets on the hill, gets the commandments, declares it to the people that these are new commands that you should follow. We've got religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. And if you shout out, who are the people that Jesus didn't really like too much, the religious leaders? What was their names? Pharisees and Sadducees. You've got Pharisees, you've got Sadducees. Those are the two big groups. There's other groups, but those are the two big ones that Jesus is just, he loves them, but he doesn't like them. He's like, you guys have some stuff to change. So they had, they observed strict, again, strict observance of the law, whether it be oral or in written, that's the two groups. So I know the right thing to do. The Jews knew the right thing to do. They knew how to go pray. They knew how to worship. That's the backdrop. One of the things that Jesus is trying to do, however, with the Sermon on the Mount, though, is go deeper than what you do. Go below what you're doing. So not just what you're doing. What's going on under that? What's your motive under that? Jesus is trying to get down there. And here's what he's trying to attack. A lot of the times Jesus says, ah, uh, you do it this way. You've heard that how to pray is this way, and here is what I say, right? So you've done it this way for so long. Here's what I tell you now how to do. So Jesus is trying to replace an old thing, an old system with a new system. However, here's the main point when we're looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees is they were doing 
what was good. They were doing a good thing by going to the temple. They were doing a good thing by praying. However, you can do a good thing and it still could be poison. You could do a good thing and it still could be wrong. You could do the right thing and get absolutely torn up inside because of it. And that should scare you. It scared me. <laughs> when I started reading it, I was like, oh my, what does this mean? Here's the point. Here's the story that I used to illustrate this point is there was one day where my mom and dad were, and I were fighting about something, and we don't fight a lot, so it was, I don't know, it was like when I was in grade 12, and I'm sure it was dumb. I probably was a stupid argument. But they wanted me to help shovel the snow outside, and I did not want to do that, because I was mad at them, right? I was very angry. I did not want to shovel the snow. I shoveled the snow, and I got owned, like killed inside for it. Like my heart, it was like I was breathing poison. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. But I was like huffing and puffing and angry at them. I was really mad. So I did the right thing and it didn't work. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. So Mr. Jew could go along to the temple and say, hey, I'm going to come in and do my worship. And then he could be doing it really to get back at somebody else for saying, oh, you don't go to the temple enough. Well, I'm going every day now for 30, 40 times just to get at that guy. So what's going on at the bottom of it, I believe, is really an ownership thing. What's happening in that situation is you are being owned by that other thing and not by Jesus. That's really what's happening. There's this verse in Philippians 3, Philippians 3 verse 12, if you do want to turn there. And basically what Paul says is this, and it's so comforting. Because Paul is a pretty good guy. So you're saying, okay, he's done it right. But here's what he says. Philippians 3.12 says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's an ownership thing there. That thing that I fought about with my mom and dad about and then shoveled the snow badly shouldn't have owned me because Jesus owns me if I'm a Christian. Jesus has me if I'm a Christian. And Paul recognizing that he's not perfect yet, that won't happen, that's good to know from Paul because you're a bit scared by Paul sometimes. You're like, man, this guy kind of gets it right all the time. But he doesn't as he declares. Jesus is the one who makes it right. He is saying, but Christ Jesus has made me his own. Freedom to do things with the right heart. With no one else getting in the way of that. Now, I'm sure the reason I was fighting with my mom and dad was probably more my fault than theirs. <laughs> My mom and dad aren't here right now, so they were here for the first service, so I'll tell them that you said that, but it, it was. She's right. It was my fault. Now, I could have looked at it and said arrogantly and been like, well, I'm not going to let them own me, and I'm not because Christ has me. That's not it either. It's humbly saying, I'm, I probably am wrong in this situation. Christ now has me, and out of the goodness of this situation, I want to let Jesus own me and not that. Sometimes we read the Sermon on the Mount, like sometimes I read it and I go, like, do you ever think sometimes you read something in the Bible and you just go, how am I supposed to do this? Do you ever think like this is impossible? I think that a lot. I look at the Bible and I'm like, uh, how? How, Jesus, when you tell me that I'm supposed to be happy for being persecuted, how is that possible? Here's what Jesus is telling you. The reason he's declaring the message anyway is because it's for the reason that you start to rely on Jesus. And you realize that he's the one who can help me do it. 
not me. Don't read the Sermon on the Mount and say, I can't do this. Say, the reason Jesus is even saying this is so that I rely on him. It's not so that I feel bad. It's so that I go, I need Jesus. He's trying to point him. He's trying to point everything to him. All the scriptures, all the things in the Old Testament, all to me. And that through me, you can do this. Without me, it's not going to happen. So if you feel bad when you're reading on the Sermon on the Mount, great. You're in, you're in my boat. I'm in the same boat. I feel bad boat. <laughs> and, we're, and now we're saying, okay, well, what's the solution? Jesus is, has done it. Whenever you read something, you push to say, okay, I can't do this in the natural, but I can do this with Jesus. You don't feel bad. Just start to rely on him. It's pushing you to reliance. Uh, that's what Jesus is trying to get at in the Sermon on the Mount. If you are to read farther on, so if you want to turn to Matthew 5, 38, we're just going to be there for a second. And what Jesus talks about here in this situation is, it's a very famous, very famous saying, but he says this. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Right? So you get slapped in the head, you turn your other cheek. Simple. Now, I always, <laughs> I always did, I didn't understand this. I didn't understand this before because I thought it meant, and maybe you're in the same boat as me, that I'm just supposed to get slapped again. You ever think that? You're just supposed to get slapped in the head again? It's like, oh, okay, well, do you, like, a little cross here to zoom in and hit me good. That's what I thought it meant. I'm like, okay, well, what's happening here that Jesus wants me to turn my other, my other cheek to get slapped again? That's what it sounds like. That is not what Jesus is talking about. And what Jesus is talking about is this. When you get slapped in the face, you turn the other cheek, and here's, this is the main point, to offer out a hand of reconciliation. To offer reconciliation. That's why you do it. You don't do it to get hit in the head again. That's stupid. That doesn't make sense. Jesus wouldn't say that. We interpret it that way because we're kind of like, what? We're not sure. You say it to offer a hand of reconciliation, to make the matter right again. To not make it wrong, to not slap him back, to say, I'm offering a peace treaty here. Let's make this right. So we've got that. At the core of the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of creating peace, making things manageable in life, making marriages work, making friendships work, making war stop, turning the other cheek. So one verse that I really, really love, it's in 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, if you want to turn with us there. It should be on the back here in a second. And Paul talks about this idea, the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he talks about. And it should be up there, and I'm going to read it down from down here, so let's read along together. So here's what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. That's good news. The old has gone. The new is here, is what he says. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry that God has given us. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he was committed to us. Uh, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, his taste through us, the light through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin or knew no sin for us, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Huge passage, and we're going we're gonna to just work through that. So the first thing we need to, the great thing about this passage, the first thing we see is that what? There is a gap between us and Jesus. There's a gap between us and God. That's the first thing. There's a, a sin issue. There's an issue that has to be dealt with. And God, rather than leaving us to just die and corrode, decides to send his son to reconcile himself to us. Right? So that's the first thing we've got. Thank God for that glorious passage and that glorious truth that God would reconcile himself to us. That's a miracle. That's amazing. That's the joy. That's the peace. That's the wow. I can't believe it. The old is gone. The new is here. Amazing. And I, 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 always, I used to um, go into the prison system and preach the gospel to prisoners and inmates. And this verse was so good. And there was a couple other verses that they could relate to. They got it. They get it, right? They understood what I was talking about there. Yes, I need that reconciliation from God. I am far from him. And we're all in that boat to some degree. And after Christ, no longer, right? That's the first thing. The next thing is that what we're seeing in that verse is that we're designed for relational unity, like relational cohesion. That's kind of what we're designed for. And the other thing that we have been talking about a ton is happiness, And when you put relational cohesion together in your life, you're going to be happy. You're going to be a lot happier than you are if your relationships are not good, I think. So have you ever had this situation where you get in a massive fight with someone? You go to bed and you wake up. Do you ever wake up super excited about life? No. You don't jump out of bed and think, wow, I cannot wait to just own the day. It's going to be a great day. Had a huge argument with my wife, but it's all good. We're fine. And I can't wait. I'm so happy. I'm so full of joy. No. If you do that, talk to me because you need some help. (laughs) We'll figure it out. That's not it. Right? If you do that, you probably just ignore the situation. You're just ignoring the situation. Whatever. And it's not going to lead to happiness. Relational unity, relational cohesion, those words that Ken's been using lead to happiness. So the key to being happy One of the keys that we've been talking about, obviously it's to give things and to lay one's life down like Jesus talks about. And then it's to look to reconcile with the people around you. Um, So some of you might know my girlfriend, Emily, who's right here. And uh, a lot of the times we have some fun interactions. We have some fun moments, maybe some fights are here or two, whatever. And we we work it out. And one of the the, uh, disagreements we had this summer, just kind of a funny disagreement that I wanted to highlight to show the power of reconciliation was this. I like to golf a ton. If you don't know that, I do. I love golf a lot. I like to do it a lot in the summer because it's the only time I can do it. And Emily got a job. And husbands, I don't know if you're ever resonating with this, but you know, you go out and it's six hours later and that's a long time. And I'm sure it's even worse when you're married because you're like, your wife's looking at you. What are you, where are you going? Why are you going for eight hours? Get another sport. Go play tennis for like two hours. It's way less right? So I come home. Uh, No, sorry. What ended up happening was this week was a big week for Emily. This is what happened. And she got a job the week, that week. Okay, so that's the Monday. And I start, I golf the Tuesday and she gets the call that she got the job and she calls me and where am I? On the golf course, like where I should be, right? No, on the golf course. And I'm on the golf course and I'm playing and it's all good. And I I said, I have to go because I'm about to tee off. So not a good start. But, we're, you know, but I wasn't rude. I just 
it had to happen, right? You had to tee up. So we go along, we go along, and Tuesday, that's just Tuesday, okay? So then what happens is the rest of the week decides to fill up. I had youth on the Thursday night. Wednesday night was something else. It might have been Bible study at that point, not sure. But anyways, fills up, fills up, fills up until the glorious day, Friday. And Friday's the best day because it's my day off. What do I do on Fridays? <laughs> I golf on Fridays, right? Like who doesn't, right? So what ended up happening was, is my buddy, uh, Ryan, had worked like 14-hour days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, okay? So he decides to tell me that he gets Friday off too. And Ryan likes to golf, and I like to golf, so we come together and we golf together. And we play 36 holes of golf. 36, 18 in the morning, then we have lunch. 18 in the afternoon, we have dinner, and we're chilling, and it's great, and I'm loving life, feeling happy, playing golf. Emily, on the other hand, is not happy. Because all week, I haven't had a chance to sit with her and celebrate the, the job, celebrate the great new job she got. And to be fair, just to kind of get on my side here for a second, because, um, you know, it's just, just right? What ended up happening, like the, the week you got away from me, and Friday I had planned in advance, because Ryan said, I think this is going to happen this week. So we planned it in advance. But boy, when Friday came, I got the teeth, and I got, uh, Emily was mad at me. And she had, I, I think she was, she had a good reason to be mad at me. I wasn't, you know, right? So all day I can tell something's up because I'm texting, hey, how's it going? How's your day? You know, after 18 holes and a, whatever, a nice refreshing beverage. We're sitting there for lunch. How's it going? And you just know that it's not going well, right? I just get this text. It's short. And it's like, well, here we go. This is, this is going to go bad, okay? So I play my next round of <laughs> the next 18 holes. <laughs> and then... I go back to Emily and I say this, I realize I've got to do something about the situation. So obviously she's been hurt or slighted and I need to figure this out. So I was going to uh, just continue on with my friend at night and we were going to have, and I said, you know what, that's probably not the best idea and I'm going to go to her house and we're going to try and resolve this situation. And we did. And I said, here is what happened. I'm sorry for the things I couldn't control. Sorry for... Listen, some things I couldn't control, all right? There was a few things in the week I couldn't control. I'm serious. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> there was, there was. So we get to that, and I, I said, you know what? I'm sorry for the other ways that I hurt you, and next time I'll just we'll play 18 holes, and then I'll see you at night. So, <laughs> but, okay, here's the thing that I needed to do better. Or that, actually, I'm going to rephrase that. Here's the thing I think I did well. I realized there was a problem Friday night, and I reconciled with her right away. I didn't leave it. I didn't let it, I didn't let it build up. Right? I didn't let it just become this thing that we're constantly going to go over. Right away that night, I said, what's up? Let's deal with this. Let's reconcile. Let's make the world right in a bright, happy place again. Right? That's what I said. So here's what I'm trying to say about this verse that we're looking at. I don't think Jesus likes if we don't do it that way right away. Because what happens is you get, you get, your heart gets messed up. You get angry. You probably act in the way you don't want to act, right? You start to say mean things. You start to be bad. You start to say no. You start to push against. You feel awful. And you start to spew venom in their direction. And it's not good, right? So that's the first thing that we're seeing uh, from Jesus here is he doesn't want that because of the repercussions of it, right? The next thing, if I were to witness to my non-Christian friends 
and say, yeah, we're still fighting about that two weeks later. That doesn't make sense. They're looking at Jesus and going, well, what's the point of Jesus if you look just like me, you don't act any different, you don't reconcile when you need to, you don't humble yourself when you need to, and make things right and own your stuff. They're going to say, no, that makes no sense. Why would I follow that Jesus you're talking about? That makes no difference. That's not salt, right? That's not light. That, that sucks. That's not the way you should live. So what's happening here at the bottom of this is Paul is trying to say, your relational unity with other people, here's the kicker, your relational unity with other people either pushes people away from Jesus or brings them in. That's what he's saying. You make the appeal in Christ to other people by being reconciled. And if you're not, do you look any different? That's the challenge. That's the challenging, the most challenging part of this whole message is if you're not doing that, people might not come to know Jesus. That's a scary thought. Yeah, I left it for a year. I left it for two years. We fight all the time. It's whatever. And you're trying to share your amazing joy you have in Christ at work. Not going to happen. That's not how that works. You might either push people away or bring people in. And that's what the responsibility that Paul and Jesus gives us is to appeal to other people because we're reconciled to each other. It's a lot better when you say, yeah, I had that fight with my wife, with my friend, with my coworker. We resolved it, and here's the fruits of it. Imagine that as a testament for Christ. It's a lot different of an equation, right? So your relational health could be a puller in. It could pull someone in. They look at you and say, look at all the joy you have. Look at all the hope you have in your relationships. Look at how you make things right in your relationships. Wow, I want a little bit of that as well. And now here, here's the thing. We're allowed to make mistakes, right? We can make mistakes. That happens. So if you're sitting there going, well, what about my past that I haven't reconciled? Today's the day to start doing that. Because it happens. Sometimes we, sometimes we make a mistake. Sometimes we don't do it the right way. Like I, maybe, I, maybe that situation, I didn't do it right. But there's always that second chance. There's always that moment to say, hey, in this, this time I could. And so that's what we want you to be inspired by is, hey, okay, in my past, it's been a bit dicey. I haven't done it the way I wanted to. Jesus is saying there's forgiveness. There's this thing, amazing thing called grace. And now live differently. The call for us today is to live as reconciled people. Reconciled to God. Reconciled to each other. And reconciled to ourselves. And that's the push. And that's challenging. And that's what, that's what is at the heart of this message. And again, when we look at that beautiful word, appeal, that's what Paul's saying. You have to appeal to other people. You have to put salt in light on things. That's what the gospel is calling you to. And on Monday, this weekend, Monday, I was with Emily at a coffee shop. I was working on the sermon and we were just, and she was doing her own work and I was typing away and um, we were talking about this part of the sermon. And she said, she said this, she said, when you are in reconciliation, with other people, you're at peace with God. 
and you're on top of that at peace with yourself, as we mentioned. I think, and she hit it on the head, that that's where the true source of happiness comes. So do you want to be happy? Live as a reconciled people. Make things right with people because you've been made right with God and that is how you appeal to others. That's how you share the goodness, the joy of the gospel to other people. That's one of the ways that you do it and that's what Paul instructs us to and that's exciting. So reconciliation, I brought this forward to our staff. We have a staff meeting on Tuesday. I brought it forward and they said, you got to make sure too though that you hit at the point where it's you can reconcile and do things and, and, and do it to maybe make, not make fun of them, but do it arrogantly. You know what I mean? You can do it arrogantly. You can come to that person and say, and do it, and do it with venom or poison at them still. And that's why we have to come towards people in humility. And if you're ever looking for just something practical, just come with your stuff that you've done first. Just throw that on the table and say, here's what I've done that I shouldn't have done. And, I, and I'm sorry. And don't just come at them. You can explain your position after that, right? But you own your side of the story. And that is, uh, I just think, a key little practical piece of advice that Paul's trying to get at. Something that worked in that situation that I had uh, over the golf, <laughs> the golf uh, issue. So to kind of wrap up here, when we're looking at what we've talked about, just to conclude, the first things we've kind of looked at are DJ Khaled. <laughs> That's the first thing we looked at. And he is the opposite of what we want to be in the Christian faith. <laughs> Not to put him on blast or anything, sorry, Mr. Khaled, but in this situation, you are going to be the opposite of what we're aiming for. We're aiming to be people who give, to people who bless others, and not who just receive, right? So that's where we're going at. We're saying, I want to thirst after righteousness sake. That's what it means to be happy. Those kind of things, that's the equation. The second thing is historically to encourage you, Christianity has been a great source of salt and light. It has transformed slavery. It has transformed the sex ethic. And it has continued to be a thing that brings forth good in the world, right? The next thing we looked at is Jesus addressing motives in the Sermon on the Mount, going deeper than just what you do. And my snow shoveling experience was a great illustration of that. I was angry. I did the right thing. And I still got burned for it. Like I got, I felt bad inside, right? And the final thing, and this is the thing I really want to leave us with, with Paul's verses in mind, is that we are to be people of reconciliation. And that is the thing that leads to true happiness. Reconciliation with God, with each other, and with ourselves is the thing that leads to true happiness. 